Thank you, April. Please take your Bibles with me as we turn again to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, the title of the message as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel is Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. We're continuing to study the, the life of Christ. And so we find our place in Matthew chapter 12 in what is really uh, a transition text. Uh, this is a passage that reveals the heart of the Pharisees who have no desire to follow Jesus. Uh, when they hear the word of the Lord, they are not hearing it as in, teach me, we want to learn, we desire to know the truth. They think they know the truth, already have the truth, and they despise the light that God has sent to them through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we see this on full display here in Matthew chapter 12. So again, finding our place there, join me, Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, quote from Hosea chapter uh, 6, I believe it is. Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 is an Old Testament reference. He says, I desire, God speaking to Israel, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you had known this, you would not have condemned the guiltless. 4 verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord even of uh, the Sabbath. Well, this is the word of the Lord. It's interesting that we find our text this morning an interesting one. Not necessarily, it's always a joy to teach and preach God's word, so that's not what I'm saying. But interactions like this one don't leave you feeling real good inside when you read the spirit and the tenor of the text that these Pharisees exhibit towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Texts, like we saw last week, are a joy to preach. When if you'll look just a few verses back, we need to look at the context and look at the contrast here. Last week we saw together, beginning in, in chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus tells all who are present, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, this statement stands, this great invitation that Jesus gives, stands in contrast to the spirit of chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, the spirit of the Pharisees. There is no sense of shepherded of heart, shepherding of heart, any type of sense of mercy or care for the souls of those that they teach the word of God to. And yet Jesus models for us the heart of a true shepherd. Last week we saw that Jesus offers rest to those 
who are weary, not just then, but now. Jesus offers us rest, rest from the weariness of our sin, rest from the weariness of the byproducts of our sin, addictions, anxiety, the effects of sin upon the soul. Jesus says, come to me and rest, and I will give you rest. We also saw that Jesus offers rest from works righteousness, human performance, legalism, those efforts that men naturally pursue to earn peace with God or to have a sense of rightness with God. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will forgive your sins. This is justification by faith alone, by grace alone. This rest means we are qualified by the work of Christ. We are accepted in the beloved. We are found in Christ, the sure and steady anchor that that we just sang about just a moment ago. So here we find that this weariness that Jesus offers, he offers a reprieve and a rest from it. And highlighting here in chapter 12, we see coming to the forefront out of, I gave a list of things that Jesus, for example, offers rest from. But Matthew gives us exhibit A. Matthew now moves into chapter 12 and shows us this is what Jesus offers rest from is religion like this. Religious effort that is clinical and sterile. Actions that you could say are not rooted in a born-again relationship with Christ and Christ alone. In fact, verse 28, the word weary, if you remember, means weariness to the point of exhaustion, a, a breaking point. So this works righteousness mindset, this legalistic mindset that is a a weary activity or an activity that wears us down to a a frazzle because it brings no peace with God. And I just want to say, by the way, all of us are born this way in a default setting. All of us are born as works righteousness pursuers or legalistic pursuers. You say, well, what do you mean? If you talk to the average person, that you work with or that you know, that you know they're not in Christ. And if you were to begin a gospel conversation with them, and if you were to say, are you right with God? Are you a disciple of Christ? Do you know that you will go to heaven when you die? Those types of beginning points of a conversation. If that person is like most people, they would say, sure, or I hope so. That the conversation would go on based upon what? And that's where you'll have your answer. Well, I try hard. I, I want to be a good person. I try not to lie and try to be kind uh, to my neighbor. I try to be friendly with all people. I don't like it when people treat me a certain way. And so I try to be nice to other people as well. And I hope that God looks at my works and sees that my good works outweigh my bad works. We think like that, don't we? By default, this is how we are born in our depravity and sin. And we think by some way that we can earn our way to heaven. But here's the problem. Works righteousness gives no assurance of peace. It's not only, not only true salvation, but how can you ever know that, that you've, you've done enough? It's relative in comparison. We simply look around and we say, well, I'm not as bad as they are. I'm, I'm not as wicked as he is. Or I haven't done what my brother's done. I haven't, and on and on that relative comparison then goes. But this is Phariseeism. This is legalism. A compared righteousness that says, listen, who can keep the rules better? Who can fulfill the law 
better. Friends, our need this morning, just want to remind all of us, is a righteousness that is not our own. Our greatest need is not a righteousness of do more, try harder, be more good, if you will, but it's to look to Jesus and live. That's been the theme the last couple of weeks. It seems to the Lord's been leading us in that direction, not only in a standalone sermon or two, but also in the study of, of Matthew's gospel. Our greatest need is not more, quote, filthy righteousness from me, because Isaiah says, even my very best deeds done in a heart that is sinful is as a, as a filthy rag before the eyes of a holy God. It's not more of my natural ability or my natural, quote, goodness, what I need and what you need, friends, this morning is the righteousness of Christ upon our account. We must be born again. And when we come to faith in Christ, everything changes. We have a relationship with the Son of God. We have a relationship with God through His Son, God in Christ. And because of this relationship, there is joy. There is a joy because of what Christ has performed on our behalf. Heaven is our home. His daily grace, he loads us with benefits, the psalmist declares in Psalm 103. There are too innumerable for us to count. Literally, everything we do is for the glory of God. And it's our joy. Notice here, it's our joy to do so. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the common the things of life that we do, do it to the glory of God. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, Paul also writing says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, that by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the life of a believer. This is the life, this is the fruit of someone who is in Christ living with joy for the King. We fail, yes. We, we sin in this life, yes. We're not fully glorified. We are not, not fully perfected. No, that is in heaven one day. But God has entrusted us with the indwelling Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, grows us, and leads us into the truth of the gospel and the truth of a relationship with God through His Son. And every day, moment by moment, friends, we are renewed. We are transformed by the Word of God. This is what Jesus offers to us. This is what rest looks like, rest from our sin and a relationship with our Lord and Master. Again, look at verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is not just a, a salvation from sin, heaven is your home, and then check out till glory. Now listen, this is take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I will share this yoke with you. I am gentle and lowly in heart. I will guide you. I will accompany you. I will provide grace for you. I will never lead you nor forsake you. And you will find rest for your souls. And so many... Many people auto-correct from legalism, that's one ditch we can easily fall into, to shift to another ditch, which is an abuse or misuse of grace. Just to put it in summary, all is free to me in Christ. No specifics, no consecration, 
No growth in grace, no call to holiness, which Peter says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But yet knowing the Spirit of God sanctifies us and makes us holy. And we are holy in His sight because of the work that He does in and through us. Passage after passage emphasizes this new life in Christ within the New Testament. But looking back at our text here, Matthew chapter 12, we see that there is a complete opposite paradigm here. There is no kindness. There is no grace. This is a heart that is bent on not only rejecting God, but now trying to catch him in some evil. The Pharisees are looking at Jesus 24-7 now. They're sick of his message. They're tired of his miracles. They are tired of being instructed about how they're wrong. They are tired of being exposed. And in that exposure from Matthew, you say, well, where? Well, in summary, I'll give some examples in just a moment. But just from Matthew chapter 1 till now, Jesus has been redefining things. Phrases like, what you have said, but I say unto you. They have equated their writings with the word of God. Here you've got the law of God, but they have taken their commentary on the law of God and stacked it on top. And so Jesus says, you have said, but I say unto you. This is the word of God. This is the law of God. But you are far from that. You say, but I say to you. So we see here in this text that there is a shift. Matthew chapter 12 is a defining moment in the the gospel of Matthew. There is a turning from Christ. There's no longer a, a natural seeking, a natural listening. But there's a heart now that's bent on finding him in something where they can legally kill him for. This is the heart of these listeners. In fact, Matthew chapter 9, we see a glimpse of it. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember in Matthew 9 verse 3, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man and when Jesus said, your, your sins be forgiven you, take courage, son, your sins be forgiven you. In verse 3, Matthew 9, they say, this man blasphemes, accusing the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless one, of blasphemy. In chapter 11 of that same passage, when Jesus ate with Matthew as a dinner guest, And present at Matthew's dinner were many of Matthew's friends, fellow sinners and tax collectors. The language there wants us to know that these are evil, wicked men because of their character. And yet Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. He's the great physician. He's not coming to the whole, quote-unquote, those who think they're whole and good. He's coming to those who know they have a need. When he ate with them, they said, look at this teacher. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. So you can see the, the sense growing of the, the aha, we've caught him in some type of evil or unjust act. Remember Matthew nine fourteen when the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and the disciples do not fast? We saw that passage where he says, listen, I am present. I am with you. Fellowship with me while you have me. I am the son of God. Then lastly, in Matthew 9, 34, just to give some examples of how this is building, when Jesus cast out the demons from the demon-possessed men, they go so far as to say in blasphemy, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. We see this turning in their hearts against the Lord Jesus Christ. So leading all the way up, if you look down at verse 14 of Matthew 12, we'll see next week how they ultimately, this full conversation turns a corner, a right corner that leads to the cross, if you will, where the Pharisees, literally the Holy Spirit tells us they went out and conspired against him 
as to how they might kill him, literally, how they might destroy him. So there's a collision happening. There's a rejection of the message. That There's a hatred of the light of Christ, the light of the world. And as we look at this passage this morning, verses 1 through 8, what we find here is an irony. These are teachers of the law. Let's remind ourselves of who we're talking about. These are those who have access to God's word. These are those who should know better. They teach the law, but notice here, they do not understand the law that they teach. They are lawyers who expert, and experts who, who are ignorant of the very law they are supposed to apply. And their applications of the law of God do not represent the heart of God. So this morning, number one, we're going to frame our thoughts around just three simple points. Number one, the action that they catch Jesus and his disciples in. The action. Number two, the accusation. And then number three, the answer. The answer that Jesus gives. First of all, I want you to note, number one, the action there in verse one. The action that they they caught Jesus in. There is a spirit here in this text of, aha, uh, I caught you. Uh, we got you in some type of evil or some type of embarrassing sin. Verse 1, the action that we see is that at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry, and they began to pick the heads of grain and, and eat. What we find here is that Jesus... The perfect son of God fails in one thing. And what he fails in, and your ears should go up at this. Wait a second, what? But this is what he fails in. Consistently, repeatedly, again and again, he fails to live up to the legalistic expectations of the scribes and Pharisees. This is why they hate him. The spirit here of this text, this we caught you. Uh, there's all types of background thoughts you could have. Is, is why aren't they? This is the Sabbath day. Why are they worried about Jesus? Why aren't they doing what they're supposed to do on the Sabbath day, right? Why aren't they following their normal customs of setting aside a rest from their normal habits and rhythms and labors? But here, they don't even realize they're so blinded by their sin. They're, they're walking around probably going beyond the allowed amount of steps that they have come up with. You couldn't go past a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath day lest you be traveling uh, and violate the Sabbath day. Well, they're probably doing just that. And they've caught Jesus. This is an essence of, of legalism. We could say, well, what, hold on a second. You, you're using that word, Legrand. What is legalism? Well, there's different definitions you could give for it, but here's one. Legalism is a, a fleshly attitude that conforms to a code for the purpose of self-exaltation. Legalism, one definition you could give, is, is conforming to a code or a codified law for the purpose of exalting self. And you say, well, wait a second, the law is good. It is when it's used properly. Paul tells us that the purpose of the law is to be a mirror. The purpose of the law of God, the Ten Commandments that we just read, just a hard read just a moment ago, is a schoolmaster. It is a teacher. It shows us our sin. It is like a tutor. Literally, the word is rendered a tutor in the New Testament that teaches us our need for Christ. The law guides us to Christ. The law points us to Christ. But legalism is, oh, no big deal. We can do that. It's taking the law and saying, I get my worth and my merit and my righteousness from keeping not only God's law, but we can do better than that. We're going to add to God's law. And where God is silent, we're going to add lots of information so that you know how to fulfill the Sabbath day to the nth 
uh, to degree. And so that, that's what we see here, a spirit of legalism here in the text. I also want to make clear that legalism is a word that's often thrown around flippantly uh, today in our Christian circles. People often just throw, you're being a legalist, or you are a legalist. And so we need to be careful. We need to understand what legalism is. Another aspect of what we could say legalism is, is anything that I'm resting in or you're resting in for salvation. Our righteousness comes through a code for the purpose of exalting self, and we're banking upon that for peace with God. And there's a spirit of legalism here in the text, this action that you could tell they're following Jesus and his apostles. Notice how verse 1 begins, at that time. It, he's moving from this open invitation to, from his teaching, and there's a transition here. They're moving, literally, they're in the grain fields on a journey. Matthew doesn't tell us where they're going, but they're being tracked. And they're being followed. Secondly, the accusation that they made against Christ and the disciples. Not only the action, but the accusation, verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, almost, aha, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. So notice our point number two is the accusation. They are bringing a claim, an accusation against not only the Lord, but against his disciples. And it's a reminder for all of us, friends, that we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we bring an accusation against someone a fellow brother or sister in Christ, some way that we feel like they are violating a principle found in God's word or his truth. Number one, we need to remember that even when those times come, we need to do it in truth and grace. There is no grace here. There is no desire from the Pharisees' standpoint to want to see Christ and his disciples from their perspective of what they think do, do right. They are gleeful. They are glad that they think they're catching Christ and his disciples, listen, in sin. And when that spirit, I'm, just, I'm applying to the life of the church, brothers and sisters, we must check our spirits of this. In fact, Paul gives the clear teaching, when a brother has fallen into sin, let you who are spiritual restore him. Spiritual. What is spiritual? Led of the Spirit of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Those who take the truth of the Word of God and call someone to repentance, but in humility. Spirit, truth, and grace. Now, the reason I say that we need to be careful when we bring an accusation is because Jesus knows the Word of God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. John 1.1, the Word made flesh. He walks among us. But here, they are confident that they know what they're talking about. They're confident that they know what they're doing. And Jesus helps us, church. Just like in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan seeks to tempt or test or sift the Lord Jesus, there's a number of ways that Christ could have handled that. But yet he chose a way to build up his followers, his disciples in the faith. Remember Matthew 4? He interacts with Satan who uses the word of God incorrectly. The Lord uses the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to show us how to battle temptation. How to withstand the tests of Satan. And that is a wonderful model for us. Here, again, the Lord refers to the Word of God. He continues this pattern of dealing with an accusation by pointing them right back to the very law that they think they are professionals on or experts upon. There's a groundhog that, that lives in our backyard. Maybe you didn't know that. 
not my backyard, our uh, backyard. How many of you have a groundhog that you may see in your yard from time to time? Groundhogs are funny things to watch, aren't they? They pop their head up. They're kind of big and beefy. They look around. They just have a funny way of, of moving. In fact, I was almost scared to death one day. I was walking from the house from behind, and I was walking back this way. We have a burn pile back here, and this groundhog pops out of nowhere. Just The way he moved was like freakishly. I hadn't seen one in a while. I'm just like, whoa, 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 what's that, you know? But groundhogs, they'll pop their head up out, and, and they're looking around. That's what I thought of when I see the Pharisees here in this text. They, they are almost in a hole, popping up, looking around to catch some type of wickedness or evil deed. Now notice what their accusation is. Verse 2, your disciples, what you're doing, what they are doing, is not lawful. This accusation is, is being made that they are violating the law of God. So we need to give some clarity here. Of course, there is the law of God, which we heard read this morning. But in Jewish history, as Jewish history unfolded, the laws and traditions, but particularly governing the Sabbath, grew in complexity throughout the centuries. One scholar says this, During the period between Ezra and the Christian era, the scribes formulated innumerable legal restrictions for the conduct of life under the law. But particularly in the Talmud relating to the Shabbat observance, or Shabbat observance, speaking of the Sabbath, there are literally, for one example, 39 principal classes, notice here, categories, um, that one commentator said it would take 25 to 30 years if you did a verse-by-verse -verse study through that commentary. It would take literally a whole uh, of your life to work through just the regulations of the Sabbath. But I'm going to give you some examples. When the Pharisees say, aha, this is the mindset that they're bringing to the table. They prohibited actions of sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing, shearing wool, washing wool, beating it, dyeing it, spinning it, making a warp of it, making two cords, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing two stitches, catching a deer, killing, skinning, salting the deer, preparing the hide, scraping up his hair, cutting it up, literally writing two letters, not letters, but two letters. You cannot write more than two letters on the Sabbath day. On and on. I, I have a whole list here. You, it just goes through just man-made prohibitions of how the Sabbath law was to be observed. So that with that as a backdrop, Jesus and his disciples are on a journey and they found themselves here with a aha moment. So back to our text. Notice what they say. There is no violation of the law here. In fact, the law permitted a person to be able to glean handfuls of grain from a neighbor's field if he was passing through. Uh, to satisfy on a journey. For example, a group of us men stopped quite a few times on Wednesday as we made a journey to go see our brother pastor over in Arkansas, Brother David Miller. It was a long journey, uh, all in one day. We got up at 5 a.m., returned at, at 12 midnight. But my point is, is we made quite a few pit stops to, to, to not eat a meal. We only ate one technical meal that day, uh, but we stopped a whole lot for snacking, you know, road trip snacks. Now, if you think about it, this is, this is the provision that is made. This is those who are a sojourner, those who are on a trip, those who are passing through. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, the law gives instruction that men are to leave certain allotments of their field for the poor, the needy, the traveler, for sustenance. There were no love's travel stops. There were no McDonald's, as we all know. So to make provision for loving our neighbor, if you will, for Deuteronomy 23, 25, when you enter your neighbor's 
uh, uh, standing grain. Allowance was made. The law said, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So let's make sure we're together here. The law prohibited a a full workday. God, going back to the creation account, simply ordained that the Sabbath day be for his people to rest in him, to be a declaration to the nations that they have a God who will provide for them, to rest and to worship him, to trust in him, to show their faith, and many other things, by the way. And so Jesus and his disciples are being accused, literally, of bringing in the harvest on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus responds with, look at our text, verse 3, he said to them, have you not read? Now, this was one of Jesus' favorite responses to critics, those who felt like they had an angle on his ministry or on his teaching or upon his healings. He would simply refer to the word of God. Friends, we're reminded here that we need to know the word of God. And not only know the word of God, we need to be able to rightly divide the word of God. Now, there's a, there's a big difference. You just simply start talking about the word of God and many people will say, amen and amen. Yes, you just start talking about the word, but can we rightly divide the word? Do we know the word? Do we obey the word or does it control us? Those are different questions altogether. Here, Jesus simply refers back to two Old Testament examples. That leads us to point number three. Notice his answer, the answer that Jesus gives in verse three. Have you not read? And he introduces for us the first Old Testament example. Now, the Pharisees love David. They love the Old Testament forefathers. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And so Jesus invokes David. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. So here in our text, he is bringing into play David, a passage from the life of David found in 1 Samuel 21 verse 6. Again, how David entered into the house of God and they ate the showbread, the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for man, or particularly for him, to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. For those of us who are looking to know how to articulate, how to have an argument, those, they happen. If you like arguments, I'm worried about you. Unless you, sell, you tell me you're a lawyer, that comes with it. But if you're someone who loves confrontation and you love to argue, I'm, I'm kidding. Some people have that type of personality. But, but ultimately, as you, as you think about it here, Jesus serves as an example for how to interact with people who delight in, aha, I caught you. And we see his pattern here is to ask rhetorical questions that pull out of the heart of the person exactly what they're saying. Now notice here that Jesus' answer, that in the first example that he gives, points to the Sabbath laws and some things that the Sabbath law does not prohibit. It never prohibited, and it's namely two things. Deeds of necessity, verses 3 and 4, and service to God. Service to God. In the second example, verses 5 and 6. And then acts of mercy in verses 7 and 8. And the key theme of our text is in Mark chapter 2, 27. He says there as well, he says, God never intended for the Sabbath to be a yoke upon the people of God. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. So there's irony here. The sinners, the Pharisees, are lording the Sabbath over the Lord of the Sabbath, verse 8. They're trying to instruct him on how to practice the law. So here, we see this example of David. And going back into the Old Testament example, this is an account of David on the run with his men from Saul. They're hungry. 
They're starving. Yes, the law gives certain instructions regarding the, the showbread. There is the, the spirit of the law. There's the letter of the law. And then there's the spirit of the law. And there's the exception of mercy. As David comes before the, the, the priest there, he is hungry. He needs to feed his men. And the priest says the only thing that's here, the only source of food is the showbread, the consecrated bread. What is that? The consecrated bread of the presence that represented one for each tribe of, the, of Israel that the priests would make, huge loaves of bread. And David ate that showbread. It sustained them. It was given to them as an act of mercy, not violating ultimately in the spirit of the law. And so Jesus points to this fact, the, the, the purpose of the law, its actual carrying out and exercise of it. And he describes here that not only the law, but allowing a greater law to supersede it. Now he shifts to showing mercy to those who are in need by giving not only the first example, but also the second example. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25, just to give a, a biblical cross-reference, but in the Gospels. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And maybe this quintessentially summarizes for us those who know the law, in fact, they've got it memorized, but they, they miss the point. You can say it like this, it's in their head, but it's not in their heart. It's in their head, but it's not in their heart. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, picking up there, let's pick up in verse 29, but he, wanting to justify by himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus answered and said to the man, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, notice here, a certain priest. Now, why is a priest given to us here? Well, a priest knows the law, doesn't he? This is a man who knows the letter of the law, but he's missing the spirit of the law. The implication in our text here is that this is on the Sabbath day. He's on a mission. He's going to go serve the people of God. He's going to go serve God. Now, verse 31 by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He says, if I don't see it, I can't be responsible for it. I'm removing myself from this situation. I've got to go serve Jesus. I've got to go serve God, excuse me, in the Old Testament mindset. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, then again, a second man, likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan when he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion upon him. And you know the rest of the story. This is a cross-reference example that summarizes what we're trying to look at here in Matthew chapter 12. It's a great illustration of what Jesus is pointing, the Pharisees and the scribes, to understand. Don't be sterile. Don't be clinical. Have a heart. And understand the heart of God as he makes provision within the law for those who need mercy, for those who are needy. And yet, these are those who are legalists. Remember, a legalist takes his value and his worth not out of joy for serving God, but he takes his value and his worth by keeping a codified rules, for lack of better words, for his own sense of self-righteousness. Now, notice the second answer, going back to, to Matthew chapter 12, the second answer that Jesus gives in verse 5. Again, he asks this question, or have you not read the law or in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet they are innocent? There's the standard of the law, there's the spirit of the law, 
But yet, what about the priests? He says, yet they are innocent, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. So don't think about that too long. Look, here, I am greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, where the heart of God says this, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Here in this second example, Jesus invokes those who serve Israel. Today's vernacular, the the pastor elder shepherd who today is not a day as we celebrate the Lord's Day, which is not anything equated to the the Sabbath day in a sense, but just the day of principle that we've set aside following the New Testament pattern of uh, example of, of, of setting apart a day as unto the Lord. Every day is the Lord's Day, but there is a particular day that is the Lord's Day, the day that we believe to be the the resurrection, commemorating it. But it's not a day of rest. It's not a day of rest for me, certainly. But in a sense, it should be a day of rest for the people of God. There's a spirit that's present on this day that is unlike Monday and unlike Tuesday. And it should be. It's wonderful. There should be a reparative, restorative, spiritual work that takes place in our hearts. And friends, I think I speak for you this morning when I say it is that for you. And if it's not, well, then that's a whole different category altogether as we examine our hearts. Here we see the spirit of it all where he says, it's not a day of rest for their priests, but you're missing the point. God does not simply want your, notice here, your service. He wants your heart. It's never been about the shedding of goats or bulls or rams. It's been all about understanding our need for the promised one, the Messiah, who would come. When we come to God, we come because we desire to love him, to worship him. Hebrews chapter 11 It says that, um, in fact, turn there with me just briefly. Hebrews chapter 11, where God rewards those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 describes, in an essence, the heart that God is looking for. We can come with confidence as those who've been justified by faith as we come before the Lord. that, That he is pleased to bless us. Notice Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Verse 3, For by it we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Then verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, but notice here, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Friends, we come this morning knowing that by faith, when we come to our God by faith, resting in the finished work of His Son, it gives great glory to the Father. He delights in rewarding us, not, listen, not because you're here this morning. Now, that's the first step. I mean, you've got to be here, no doubt. But many people check out by simply walking in the door. I, went, I go to church on Sundays. Hey, my friend, are, are you a Christian? Do you know Christ personally, relationally? Yeah, I'm a member of Grace Community Church. You'd be shocked at how many people, that's the first thing they say, where they go to church. Now, that's good, but friends, that's not salvation. Salvation is being born again by the Spirit of God, being brought into a relationship with the Son of God. Coming to an awareness of your need for Christ, knowing your great sin, and saying, I have no hope unless someone saves me from my sin. I can never earn salvation. I can never work my way to heaven. But Christ, God sent His Son to live the life that I'm not capable of living, but yet he lived it for me. And recognizing and repenting of sin and saying, Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner, save me. 
coming to him by faith, confessing with our mouths that he is Lord and believing in our hearts the work he has done for us, turning from sin. God delights in rewarding those who come, rewarding those who come to him by faith. When we come and worship the risen Savior, we are those who in the language of Hebrews eleven six, come delighting in him, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. Friends, all throughout the Old Testament, you can go Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah 3, all throughout the major prophets, the minor prophets, God regularly expresses to his people, you think you please me just by the action of your sacrifices. I want your hearts. I want you, your faith. And they are simply resting in the action and yet no heart behind it. No desire to please, to love, to worship, and to rest in the promises of God. Now, back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. Here, Jesus makes a definitive statement about his person. Again, this has been a technical passage today. We understand that. This is a transition passage which enters into who is Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Uh-oh, we've, we've caught him in a violation of the law. Well, actually, you haven't. You don't know the law, as Jesus tutors them on. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is capital uh, letter O there. There is one, speaking of himself, one greater than the temple. But if you had known this, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, speaking back to his disciples there in verses 2. Now notice verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord, period but even of the Sabbath. Here, Jesus draws a line in the sand that is a line of demarcation for these scribes and Pharisees, and in a sense, for us even here today. You could say it like this. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Or I could ask it like this. Friends, what have you done with Jesus? Because every man must make a decision regarding Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus says, essentially, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, equaling, equating, I am God. I'm not just a man. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, if you remember, he made clear to them, he says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but I have come to fulfill. So therefore, he is Lord over everything that the law Addresses. You could say it like this. If you want to know what the law is, simply ask him. He is the law made perfect. If you want to know how the law is to be applied, which is our key takeaway here this morning, what does it look like to see the law applied through the lens of the gospel? Look at Jesus. Watch Jesus. Hear his words. Hear his message. Hear his actions. And you will see the law fulfilled in the law apply. Now, many people hear that, people who are ignorant of Scripture, and they don't know the Jesus of the Bible. I think we need to make that clear. Many people would like to take the Sermon on the Mount and cut it out of the rest of the Bible, like as, as if it stands uh, alone. They, they look at it as like ethical, the good ethics that Jesus uh, exhibits. Friends, listen, Jesus is the full package. You, you can't typically take snips and, and, and bits of his preaching and teachings, and we need to make that clear. In fact, the way the world defines Jesus or defines love, they would say, well, it's not loving to confront people in their sin. Well, Jesus obviously has no problem doing that. 
Because that's what saves. That's why we want to say, if you want to know how the law is to be applied, ask him, watch him. And those of us who know these things need to be reminded again and again the spirit of Christ as well. We see Christ in one sense shepherding those who've been entrusted to him. But yet there is a, a word, notice here, not only for the sheep, but there is a word for the goats. There is a tone that he is not afraid to give those who have no desire to trust or to rest or to come to faith in Christ. Well, we close this morning at this passage by simply looking at this answer that Jesus gives. Verse 8, I am Lord. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, they don't get it. Next week we'll see in next week's passage that Jesus goes on to specifically heal a man. This is an act of mercy on the Sabbath. Jesus does a number of things all in one, and yet they still, the result, verse 14, is desire to kill him. And we see at the end of next week, the road is being charted out. The plumb line is being set for the cross. The dynamic, the tension of the cross that is coming. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And Father, we remind ourselves that we can be so technically right at times. But yet, Father, when we're not marinating in the truth of Scripture, we miss the greater point. Sometimes we can have a head knowledge of your word, but yet, Lord, it is not cultivated in our heart. Father, would you give each one of us, I pray for our parents here this morning. I pray for our grandparents, those who shepherd little ones, or to have that wisdom in shepherding the hearts of their child, both with truth and grace. Having rules and principles, but yet, Lord, knowing the balance of shepherding their children to Jesus. The law crushes, standards crush and that's why we need Christ. Father, I pray for those who are dealing with the tension of the workplace, with unbelieving family members, trying to handle that balance, Lord, of knowing truth and grace, knowing the truth of God's word, but yet not losing the love that is proclaimed through the gospel. Father, we pray that we would not have all grace and no truth. Father, we ultimately need your spirit and I pray that you would help us as Grace Church to examine our hearts anytime we see a sense of Phariseeism, a resting in a codified sense of effort and works over departed, or you could say divorced from the gospel itself. Father, show us that, that we may repent of it, see it in our own hearts, and Father, turn away from it. Would you give us the heart of Christ, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.